from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the CER Podcast. My name is Sophia Besch. I'm a researcher here at the Center for European Reform. And today I'm talking to Agata Gostinska Jakubowska, who's also a research fellow here at the CER. And she's actually our CER expert on EU institutions. And so I wanted to talk to her about the role of the institutions in Brexit negotiations. And this is a very timely conversation because today, on Monday, the UK and the EU's team are gearing up for the second negotiation session. Agatha, could you explain why the UK is negotiating with the Commission rather than with the 27 heads of state or government? The short answer to your question is uh, that the British delegation is negotiating with the Commission mainly because the Commission is EU's main negotiator. But of course, it wasn't that self-evident in the aftermath of the referendum um, when member states and the Commission entered into political and legal squabbles over who should be in charge of those negotiations. This is mainly because Article 50 is not perfectly clear on this. Article 50 is talking about the EU negotiator, but is not sort of referring to the European Commission. But at the, at the end of the day, um, member states recognized that the European Commission would be best um, suited to run the exit talks. And in December 2016, they welcomed the appointment of Michel Barnier, who is the lead um, negotiator, and also recognized that simply the European Commission has better resources, has better ex uh, expertise. After all, it uh, conducted you know, both accession talks and numerous um, international negotiations. And as you know, many actually refer to Brexit um, as a sort of accession in reverse. But what seems to be striking to me is that the British government hasn't fully grasp the fact that it needs to negotiate with supranational institution, uh, mainly because um, the British government or British governments have always, you know, um, be quite dismissive, have been dismissive of the institutions. The British um, media have sort of vilified the Commission's officials as a, you know, faceless bureaucrats. And you could actually see it when Theresa May went to Brussels last time with her proposal on citizens' rights. And she wanted to negotiate her proposal with EU leaders. And, you know, they allowed her to um, present her arguments. But then they very politely showed her the door and said, you will have to negotiate it with Michel Barnier. And, you know, just, just a final note on this, um, this is self-explanatory because the European Commission represents general interest of the EU, interest of both small and, you know, big member states. So it will help member states to maintain their unified um, stance on Brexit. Okay, but let me push you a little mm -hmm. bit on this because sure. it makes sense formally. Um, but I can also see where Theresa May is coming from mm. because uh, the European Commission is in the lead. But 
that surely doesn't mean that the member states will not perform any role in the negotiations at all, because after all, Brexit will have implications on their economies, on their citizens. Absolutely. And this is also why they initially were not certain whether they wanted the Commission to be in the lead, because for obvious reason, they want to uh, steer the process uh, and they will steer the process, but from the back seat. And if you look at the logistics um, of, of, of Brexit on the EU side, EU leaders uh, have already adopted guidelines uh, for the negotiations, which serve as a compass for Michel Barnier. Then they adopted negotiating mandate, which again is sort of very helpful for Barnier when he negotiates um, with the British um, delegation. They also established the Council Working Group on Article 50, where they sent um, one permanent Brexit delegate. Um, and this working group will discuss any negotiating papers um, that the European Commission plans to uh, present to the British uh, delegation. And Michel Barnier will also report back to this council working group um, to update member states on the progress. And finally, you know, member states will have to unanimously agree on the European Council level whether they think that Michel Barnier has actually made sufficient progress um, for the talks to sort of proceed towards the second stage of the negotiations where you know both parties could start scoping out the future relationship. And, you know, last but not the least, um, the Council of the EU, so again member states, will also have to conclude the final Agreement. So I fully, un I fully agree with you. Member states will be there. It's just that you know the supranational institution, Michel Barnier, will be speaking on their on their behalf. So moving on to another institution, what about the European Parliament? Guy Verhofstadt has been very vocal in his criticism of uh, the government's proposals, but on the other hand, the Parliament here in the UK is often seen as not much more than a mm. talking shop. How much do they actually matter in yeah. Brexit negotiations? Well, you, you just mentioned something which is very often causing frustration also in this institute for someone who has been working on the <laughs> institutions. And I, I, I perfectly see your point. Uh, indeed, the Brits, uh, it, se it seems to me, they have seen uh, the European Parliament more as a, as a talking shop the European Parliament will have an influence, or actually it has had already an influence in the Brexit negotiations. You are right to say that the European Parliament does not formally participate in the negotiations, but it has to agree, ratify the final withdrawal treaty and any treaty on the future relations. And in the past, you know, it used its veto powers when it thought that member states or the commission did not engage it uh, in, in sufficient manner in the negotiating process. So what Michel Barnier has done is basically he tried to engage uh, Verhofstadt and other group leaders as much as possible to avoid this kind of situation. I'm not saying the European Parliament will veto um, any agreement, but I'm saying it will try to exert the pressure. And the way they have approached the negotiations is basically uh, the European Parliament will adopt resolutions before the Council or the European Council, you know, takes any sort of further decision on, on, on the process, it will sketch out its red lines, 
its priorities. And in a way, it seems to me that even though I guess member states are quite uneasy about you know, this very assertive European Parliament, which is trying to expand a bit on its powers, at the end of the day, um, they think that the European Parliament playing as a bad cop can be helpful to them because, you know, Barnier can always say to the British delegation, if the British delegation accuses him of the lack of willingness to compromise, he can say, well, you know, I cannot go any further. I cannot compromise on this because the European Parliament, you know, will not be happy about this. And then we sort of increase the probability of sort of complications uh, at this stage of the ratification process. So I think, you know, we shouldn't underestimate the role of the European Parliament and basically also the role of what, or basically of what Verhofstadt has been saying. It sounds like they're forced to be reckoned with in the Brexit negotiations. Um, in your research, uh, which everyone should read, by the way, <laughs> this is where Agatha explains all of this in more detail, but you also cover the role of the European Court of Justice, the ECJ. Um, and from what I gather, it looks like the ECJ is only an observer of the talks, but for the moment <laughs> could potentially complicate Mrs. May's yeah, task. Absolutely, absolutely. So in this latest paper that I published on, on the role of the EU institutions in the Brexit talks, I argue actually that the ECJ is going to be the major stumbling block. And as you said, you rightly pointed, you know, for the moment the ECJ is not actively engaged. It can't be, it's just a it is a court. But you know if any institution or a member state were unhappy about the outcome of the negotiations, they could always ask the ECJ, for example, to annul the decision of the Council of the EU to conclude the agreement. They have such a possibility under the EU treaties. And it happened actually in the past in 2004 that the European Parliament asked the ECJ to annul a decision a uh, council decision to conclude an agreement with the US and two years later the ECJ actually sided with the European Parliament. Again, I'm not saying that, you know, member state or the EU institution will try to use this weapon, but, you know, the fact that you have such a probability again increases your leverage. Then some lawyers also argue that ECJ could be asked to adjudicate on the sort of uh, conformity of the entire withdrawal agreement with the EU law, though actually the EU lawyers that I have talked to think that Article 50 does not provide for such a possibility. I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty legal details, but you can read it in my in my latest paper. So this is one aspect of, you know, where the ECJ could complicate the Brexit talks. But then another one, and I think uh, you know, our colleagues and, and Camino um, Mortera Martinez, who actually also worked, has worked on, on those issues. We've been very clear by saying that it was actually unwise of the British government to say we will end the jurisdiction of the Court of Justice when we leave the EU. You know, the UK will be a third country, but it will be also a former member state which means that the EU wants the ECJ to have a role um, in securing the rights of the EU citizens living in the UK or the financial commitments that the UK has made. You know, it seems to me that the um, European Commission, also member states 
and the European Parliament as well, will insist um, that the ECJ maintains its jurisdiction if any transitional provisions uh, were to be put in place. And then finally, also any kind of uh, ambitious um, uh, future uh, treaty or agreement you know, covering both economic and political issues will probably, I mean, there will be an intention from the EU side to also sort of secure some role for the ECJ. Just a very quick example of Denmark, you know, Denmark has opt-out um, from the um, uh, Justice and Home Affairs, but when it negotiated an agreement on access to Europol databases, it had to accept the ECJ jurisdiction. So as you see, I mean, it's going to be very complicated manner. So if the British government does not, you know, compromise or does not decide to meet the EU halfway, you know, there is a potential, unfortunately, for the crash. Yeah, the ECJ keeps zeroing its ugly head in all matters. It keeps us awake at night. Yeah. Right. Finally, I want to talk to you about transparency, Mm -hmm. um, which is a contested topic here in the UK, certainly. But what about the EU? They have been quite open about negotiation objectives. Uh, The EU has published its position papers. What do you make of its transparency policy Mm. and Brexit negotiations? If I may, just before we we cut uh, into it, I just think, you know, it's worth underlining that Brexit negotiations cannot be compared to any international negotiations. You know, the lives uh, of three million EU citizens living in this country and almost one million point two British citizens living on the continent is at stake. You know, both business, uh, environmental groups and other stakeholders, uh, they simply worry um, about the implications of Brexit. So it makes a difference to them, you know, how the UK leads the EU, what kind of relationship it will have with the EU in the future. And it seems to me the EU and Michel Barnier in, in particular recognizes that you cannot simply conduct those talks over their heads. So the um, uh, Council of the EU adopted special guidelines um, on transparency, where it um, sketched out which documents will be published. Up till now, most of them actually, if not all, have been published. Uh, Member states also encouraged Barnier to meet stakeholders, to engage in a discussion, to sort of report on the progress of the talks. You also now have have those press releases or press um, uh, conferences following the negotiating session. So there is this aspect, but I think, you know, we, we cannot be naive uh, in thinking that it's only about citizens. I think um, uh, the EU has been also smart enough to use this transparency policy as its negotiating tool to simply increase its uh, leverage in the negotiations. And again, we've mentioned this already, you know, Michel Barnier can always say to David Davis, dear David, I cannot really compromise on those issues because Here's the mandate of the Council of the EU and my hands are tied. And then there's also another aspect, you know, some member states like the European Commission more than than others. You know, Michel Barnier is uh, very straightforward in what he has been up to. Then you also limit the risk of some member states thinking that perhaps, you know, he's selling an interest of smaller member states in favor of, of, of bigger. So. 
um, uh, there isn't, uh, basically, thanks to the transparency policy, there isn't such a, a aspect here. And finally, it seems to me that, you know, this transparency policy has worked really well in terms of forcing the British government to be more open about its negotiating position. Because as you remember, Theresa May used to say, we cannot reveal our negotiating position because it will play into the EU's hand. But this argument just loses all the credit. It's not credible anymore because simply, you know, the EU has published uh, its negotiating position. And we see that the British government has actually started uh, uh, publishing its its negotiating stance as well. So I think it has worked on all fronts. Fascinating. Agata Gostice, Jakubowska, thank you very much. Thank you very much. If you enjoy listening to the CER podcast, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes. And while you're there, please leave a rating or a review. It helps other people find us. And you can also let us know what you think on Twitter at CER underscore EU.